O our great Redeemer, one who feeds us now and evermore, please feed us this morning through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, about 15 years ago, the BBC aired a couple of series of a program called Grumpy Old Men. I don't know whether you saw that or remember it. If you did, you probably would. The whole program was nothing but back-to-back footage of middle-aged men complaining about things that annoyed them, whether it was the weather or people or the government or roadworks or dog walkers, anything they could think of, sometimes getting hugely worked up by even the most trivial of irritations. Uh, More recently, Sky uh, showed two seasons uh, by the comedian Carl Pilkington entitled The Moaning of Life, Uh, one man from Manchester whinging about the world. And he even toured the seven wonders of the world. And you see him going around seeing these amazing things, and all he can do is complain about it being a bit hot or, you know, there being a bit of litter or something like that. And maybe you hear all that and you find yourself thinking, isn't that awful? All these people that have just spend their time complaining and moaning. I'm, frankly, I'm fed up with people who just complain all the time. Oh, if you're thinking that, I'm with you. They're so annoying, aren't they? And then perhaps it strikes you that grumbling about people, grumbling probably makes you a pretty big grumbler yourself. Grumbling is, if we're honest, a favorite British pastime. I'm sure that to varying extents, we'll all have to admit to grumbling and complaining about things. Uh, Perhaps we dress it up as reasonable criticism or constructive feedback. Uh, But if we're honest with ourselves for just a moment, we're probably just grumbling, really, aren't we? Whether about trivial things or about significant things, whether out loud for others to hear or in the privacy of our own thoughts, we grumble. And grumbling is not a new thing as we've just heard in our reading from Exodus this morning. Here we get three stories of the Israelites grumbling. And these stories reveal to us the danger of grumbling, but also point to the solution. The first is the story of Marah. It comes just three days after God's people had been miraculously led through the Red Sea, after they joyfully sing this song of praise at the start of chapter 15. But after just three days, and in our Bibles, after just three verses, their gratitude very quickly turns to grumbling. Uh, Take a look at verse 22 of chapter 15. Verse 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, what are we to drink? The water's bitter, so they call the place Marah. That's what Marah means. It means bitter. But it's not just the water that's bitter. You see, it's the people too. They want water, not an unreasonable thing. But rather than look to the Lord or ask him for help, they grumble against God's servant Moses. And it seems amazing, doesn't it, that these people just such a short time after such a miraculous salvation are turning to be full of bitterness like this. You know, I remember a number of years ago uh, reading through and studying the book of Exodus. And as I went through the book, I, I got more and more self-righteous and indignant about these silly Israelites. 
how so quickly they, they see all this amazing stuff and then they're grumbling, they're worshipping other gods. You think, come on, if I had seen that, it would change me forever. I would... And then I, I still remember the moment, sat there with my Bible when the penny dropped. And I realized, actually, I'm very, very like the Israelites. So often, I'm here on a Sunday, I'm full of praise for God. Maybe I've not been singing, but hearing others sing these great songs of praise. I'm full of love for God and gratitude for the gospel. But if I'm honest with you, it doesn't take me three hours, let alone three days, for my, to find myself grumbling about life. And I wonder whether you're anything like that. We tend to be much better at seeing what we don't have than seeing what we do, don't we? Well, Moses did what they should have done all along. Look at verse 25. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. Now, who would have thought of doing that? No one. It's a miracle, and it's a weird one, actually. You'd never have thought to do that. But that's the point. We should turn to the Lord for help because he can provide in ways we'd never have imagined. And reflecting on this brief episode, God explains that he's putting his people to the test. Look at the end of verse 25. There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, If you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Now, the Lord is testing his people, not in the sense that he's trying to trip them up, but rather he's trying to show them what they're like. And he's trying to teach them to trust in him for their greatest needs. He is the ruler who rescues for what? For, come on, relationship. Yeah, we should have that in our heads by now, for relationship. And he wants a relationship with his people, with us, that is built on a deep trust in his goodness and in his power to provide. Notice in this little story, it's not that they didn't have a great need but that they didn't believe they had a great God to meet it. Three days without finding water, who wouldn't have been concerned? But rather than calling out to God in faith, they complained against his servant in anger. It says a lot about them, that they weren't trusting God to provide for them, which is exactly what he then did, not just with the waters of Marah, but in verse 27, it says, then they came to Elim where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees and they camped there near the water. An abundant provision, you see? The story of Marah is a promise that if we trust God, we will find that he is the one who heals you just as he healed the water and provided for his people. But then we come to the story of the manna. And it's quickly clear that the the Israelites haven't learned their lesson. This time they're hungry. Take a look down at verse 2 of chapter 16 now. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. 
And this really is a stinging complaint. After God has worked with such sustained power to liberate them from slavery and oppression, they quickly say, in effect, we wish you hadn't bothered. Frankly, life was better in slavery. Now, I wonder, how would you expect God to respond at that moment? How do you think he should behave towards such repeatedly disgraceful behavior by his people? This is the the next verse. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down blank from heaven. Now, how would you fill in the blank? When I read that, I thought fire. That would be the fair thing to rain down. Rain down fire from heaven. What does it actually say? I will rain down bread from heaven. That's how God fills the blank. Not only is he patient with us, he continues to pour out his grace on us. And sure enough, God provided not just with bread, but with meat as well. Follow along from verse 13, just over the page, verse 13 of chapter 16. That evening, quail came and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? for they did not know what it was. Verse 31 tells us the people of Israel called the bread manna. And the little footnote in our Bible tells us why, because manna sounds like the Hebrew for what is it? Which seems like a pretty good name for something when you don't know what it is. And so, look, once again, the story of the manna is an invitation to trust God to provide. But now that invitation is to trust God on a daily basis. Look at chapter 16, verse 4. You just have to go back a page again to find that. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. You see, God was schooling his people in trusting them, to pro- trusting him to provide for them one day at a time, but no more. And God gave them no alternative but to trust him for each new day. Go over and look at verse 19. Top of the second column on page 74. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. You see, some of the Israelites fell asleep, comforted by the knowledge that there was more manna on the shelf. Who needs to trust the Lord to provide? But by the morning, the foolishness of their disobedience was made clear. On the sixth day of the week, the rules were a bit different. They were allowed to collect twice as much manna and to keep some overnight to allow them to have the seventh day off. And God commanded them to do so. Look at verse 23. This is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil, save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, said Moses, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. So what did they do? 
thank God, remember that they can trust him to provide and take the day off? Well, no, verse 27. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? And gosh, you can sympathize with that question, can't you? How long? How long until you learn? He told them to rest, to take the day off, to trust him to provide, but they wouldn't. I have to say that I have felt very convicted in recent months about my keeping, or rather my breaking, of the fourth commandment. This is confession time, all right? <laughs> the fourth commandment is this. Remember the Sabbath by keeping it holy. God tells his people to work for six days, but to do no work on the seventh. Why? Is it that just God is a little bit ahead of the curve and is into kind of, you know, self-care and all that kind of stuff? And we've just caught up with him in the 21st century. Well, no, that's not the main reason. He says that we should do that in order to remember what God has done for us. His finished work of creating the world and saving his people. We are to down tools for one day a week to teach our souls that our greatest need has already been met and that it's something that we don't contribute to. But we live in such a busy world, don't we? Everyone's scurrying about as though their lives depended on it. And so it is so easy to get caught up in. So even on my day off, I'm hard at work. Even if not with jobs that are related to my employment, I'm still running errands, doing DIY, cutting the grass, catching up on life admin. At the end of my day off, I'm exhausted. But more to the point, I've given precious little thought to God's finished work for me, which is the point of the day of Sabbath rest. And so it's no wonder that I end up with a restless soul, continually preoccupied with what I must get done and continually under-occupied with what God has already done for me. Now, there's a lot more to be said on this topic. I'm conscious that I've, perhaps for you, opened a can of worms without time to deal with it. And so if you want to talk to me about it more and what it means to have a day of Sabbath rest, then do feel free to grab me after. There'll probably be a queue of people now um, after the service. But I think this much is beyond dispute for all of us who are Christians here this morning. We demonstrate our trust in God by our ability to rest. Because we're able to rest when we're trusting in God to provide and because we believe our greatest need has already been provided for in Jesus. Here in Exodus 16, he is teaching his people to trust him with a daily trust. It's why Jesus taught us to pray for our daily bread and no more. And, and it's why he said just later in that same chapter, do not worry about tomorrow. He's got tomorrow. Trust me for today. And so friends, is there some great need you feel keenly in your life at the moment? Some great burden you're struggling to carry? Or some fear about what the future may bring. Often God gives us grace for today 
and asks us to trust him for tomorrow. Grace for the next day will come, but not until the morning. And whilst that can feel hard, it's not God being cruel. Quite the opposite. He's teaching us to keep looking to him day by day for the comfort and security that only he can really provide. And so we've had the story of Mara, the story of Manna, and thirdly, the story of Massa, which means testing. And it's almost a repeat of what happened in chapter 15. They run out of water, and so they quarrel with Moses, demanding something to drink. But there's one thing that's different in this story. In the first two stories, we saw that it was God putting his people to the test. But now it's them testing God. Do you see how in verse 2 of chapter 17, Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? And again, in verse 7, it says Moses called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? They were testing the Lord in the sense of judging him, putting him in the dock and launching accusations at him. Again, they accuse Moses of leading him into the desert, leading them into the desert to kill them. And since Moses is God's chosen leader, it's really God himself that they're accusing. And this is a warning for us today about the true nature of grumbling we tend to think of it as just getting something off our chest, letting off some steam, something innocent, even healthy, perhaps. But the truth is grumbling is more like a very dangerous virus. Firstly, because it spreads to others. When I grumble, I infect those around me with the same attitude to the problems of life. I spread discontentment, not just with the circumstances themselves, but also with the God who is sovereign over those circumstances. And secondly, it's like a dangerous virus because it hardens our hearts. Grumbling presumes to put God to the test. It scrutinizes God. It questions his goodness. It casts doubt on the reliability of his provision. Grumbling puts God in the dock and finds him guilty of mismanaging his world. It's nearly 20 years old now, but I I imagine that a number of us have seen the film Bruce Almighty. Um, Pretty old, but a a great film. I loved it. Um, And um, the story is about a man called Bruce, uh, played by Jim Carrey. Um, And he, uh, everything goes wrong in his life. And he's absolutely fed up. And you see him praying in his car and he is seething with anger against God. So frustrated at unanswered prayers and at the way that God is allowing things in his life to go out of control. And so there's this scene where God meets with him in person, Morgan Freeman, and says to him, you seem to be pretty unhappy with the way I'm running the world. And so here's the deal. You're going to have my power for a little while. We'll see how you get on, okay? And at first he doesn't believe it, but then he becomes convinced that he really has got all of God's powers and he has become Bruce Almighty, And he enjoys his power for a little while. He goes around, he has the car, he does everything that he wants to do. But then when he starts beginning to engage with the bigger issues of life and in trying to sort out the big issues that he and others are facing, he quickly makes a terrible mess of it all. 
He finds that the things that he most wanted wouldn't actually play out for his or others' good after all. And he found he just didn't have the wisdom to run the world. And when we grumble, like Bruce did in that film, when we complain about the way that God is managing his world, we're putting him in the dock. We're finding him guilty. We're saying, I'd do a better job than you would. And so when I'm late for a meeting because of the learner driver who keeps stalling in front of me, I'm tempted to grumble. But God has sovereignly ordained that I should be stuck behind this driver. Perhaps to teach me patience or perhaps to help me to model it to my passenger. Less likely. Lockdown is extended and it ruins your plans. Very tempted to grumble and I confess that I have in the last couple of weeks. But God is enthroned above all governments and he works in all things for the good of those who love him. Do you believe that? I don't mean, do you believe that? Oh, yes, Vicar, I believe. No, I mean, in here, do you believe that? You're constantly frustrated by the behavior of someone in your home. And yet it might just be God's way of teaching you to lay aside your preferences. Will you grumble against his decision to let that happen? The same is true even with the more significant concerns of life. Perhaps you're single and you wish you were married. Or perhaps you're married and actually you wish you were single. Now, those aren't small or light matters, are they? And actually, there's not necessarily anything wrong with either feeling. We're not to suppress such longings, but it is another thing altogether to begin accusing God of wrongdoing or working for our harm. Do you see the difference? Grumbling might seem small, but it's a sickness that gradually takes hold and hardens our hearts against God. It puts him in the dock and launches accusations against his goodness. And Psalm 95 says this, Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me, they tried me, though they had seen what I did. In Hebrews 3, the author quotes those words and adds this. He says, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Remember how a central theme of the plagues was the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, and it led to his ruin. Well, here we see what leads to a hardened heart. Grumbling is no small thing. It slowly, slowly, subtly at first hardens our hearts against God. And a hard heart leads to ruin. Tragically, that's what happened for this generation of Israelites. God remained faithful to his people. He preserved his people. But that whole generation wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and died in the wilderness, never making it to the promised land. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that they are a warning for us. So look, when God provides in a way that isn't in line with your preferences or your timing, be careful. You'll be tempted to grumble. 
but instead take the opportunity to trust God rather than to test him. And next time I grumble to you, would you choose your moment carefully, but perhaps just ask me something like this. Chris, how are you trusting God to provide for you in that situation? And I'll go, ah, yeah, they were listening. Well done. And a good word for me. Now, if the story of Massar shows us the danger of grumbling, then the solution, the cure to our grumbling is to see how God satisfies our deepest needs. In John 6, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. Jesus satisfies us in a way that goes far beyond the provision of bread. He gives his people eternal life. Uh, Tim Chester, I quoted him last week. I'm going to do do so again this week. Uh, He writes this. Jesus doesn't always give us what we want, but he meets our deepest needs. He gives us identity, fulfillment, forgiveness, and relationship. Above all, he gives us life. He gives us a future, an eternal future in God's presence. Jesus gives us himself, and that is a gift that endures beyond death. We look for satisfaction in wealth, but wealth corrodes. We look for satisfaction in our careers, but at best, careers end in retirement. We look for satisfaction in the admiration of others, but our looks fade or our powers decline or someone more admirable comes along. We look for satisfaction in relationships, but people betray us or we are left bereaved. And when these things, even when these things endure, we don't. We die. Death robs us of all the things for which we have lived, for we take none of it with us. There is only one exception, and that is Jesus. Death does not rob us of Jesus, quite the opposite. It opens the door to a greater experience of his glory. Look to Jesus to be enough for you and there will never, ever come a day when he is not enough. When we grumble, it's as though we, we shrink our horizons until they are filled with our problem. But Jesus invites us to regain a right perspective by expanding our horizons to include him and the cross. And with that broader vision, what do we see? Jesus has given everything for us. Everything. Do we really think he won't give us everything we need? And what else do we see? That Jesus has given us eternal life with him. And that is a gift that will go on forever, that will never wear out and that will not disappoint us as this life so often does. If Jesus and his cross fills our horizons, it doesn't downplay our needs, but it sets them in a right perspective that quiets our grumbling hearts and helps us to trust him more each day. Now, look, I wonder how you'll respond to what we've heard this morning. 
One way I could imagine us responding as a church family would be to silence our grumbles in order to avoid looking ungodly. Or better not be heard complaining for the next few weeks, we might think. But it would be a great pity if that's as deep as this went. The point here is not to suppress our grumbling. It's to address what causes the grumbling in our hearts in the first place by helping us to see that we can trust God to run his world with wisdom and for good. Will you allow this word to address your heart, not just your lips? Neither should we pretend that everything in our lives is easy and carefree and that we're not finding it hard to trust God. We're not supposed to deny the greatness of our needs, but to depend on the greatness of our God to meet those needs. And part, you know, one of the things I long for, for us as a church family, and part of our responsibility to each other as a church family, is to know each other well enough to know what's going on in our lives, the struggles that we're facing, the burdens that we carry, the fears that we hold for tomorrow, so that we can then encourage each other to trust the Lord and to depend on him to provide. But we will only have that sort of church family when each of us as individuals decides to become part of a culture like that. Not burying what's going on in here, but speaking of it to each other and applying the gospel to those things that are going on at the deepest level inside of us. Will you be part of that? Please, I want to be a part of a church like that. I think actually, so do you, so do all of us. But it only begins as we start to behave like that with each other. Whatever needs you're facing, whether big or small, remember the story of Marah. Don't become bitter towards the Lord. Cry out to him instead. Remember the story of the manna. Trust the Lord for your daily bread and rest. Truly rest because you trust him to provide. And remember the story of Massah. Don't test the Lord by grumbling and so hardening your hearts against him. Instead, broaden your horizons to include Jesus and his cross, where he won for you forgiveness and eternal life. See how he satisfies our greatest need. Live in gratitude for what he's already given, not in grumbling over what you lack. Look to him and say to your soul, he is enough. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask for your forgiveness that so often we presume to question and to throw accusations against your leading of your world. Please cause us to have hearts that are soft, not hard, that trust you today and look to you for tomorrow. And we pray that you would help us to be a people whose minds, whose hearts, whose words are full of the Lord Jesus, 
and celebrating that greatest provision that satisfies our deepest needs when he came down for us, the bread of heaven. He gives eternal life through his death and his resurrection. Would we be a community that points to him and is full of praise to you. In Jesus' name, amen.